All right, we're going to get underway. Um, then I'm going to uh, I'm going to start by praying for us, and then we'll and then we'll jump into the text here. Dear God, I thank you for another week to study your word, and I thank you for uh, another opportunity to do it with these people here. Um, God, I pray that uh, you would take uh, you would take what what Scott and I have here and study, and that you would use it, and that it would be you doing the speaking, um, that we would be drawn to you as we read your word and nothing else, and that it would be um, evident that it is the Spirit doing the work to change us and nothing else. And uh, I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Um, we are in tonight, 2 Corinthians 4, and we will make our way into 5 tonight. While you are going ahead and turning there, um, I'll tell you a quick story. So, December of 2009 was Amy and I's first Christmas with a kid. And, and so Ella was, our oldest was about eight months old at that time, and, and having a new baby in the house for Christmas was a pretty big deal for us, especially for my wife, because Amy is, her love language is gift giving. She loves to give gifts, and so now she's got this other little person in, in her life that she can shower gifts on for Christmas. And so we got really excited, especially Amy, but me too, got really excited and bought all these gifts for Ella, our little eight-month-old baby. And baby gifts, I don't know if you remember, I don't know if they were cool when you were a baby. When I was a baby, they weren't cool. They were just like rattlers and stuff, right? But baby gifts now are cool. Um, like there's some baby gifts that I could legitimately be entertained by for a couple of hours at least. Um, they, li- they light up, they do music, they do, there, there's so many things now that babies can have. And so, many gifts. And so we got all these really cool, fun, light up, noisy gifts to give to Ella on this day and just piled them up and, and we, we got them, we're excitedly handing them to her and of course she can't do anything, she can barely even sit up. So she can't open the presents, right? So we're opening them for her and then put it in her lap and every gift that we, ta- that we open up, we take a picture with her next to it, kind of mindlessly staring off, right? While we're happy and taking a picture next to it, right? And we're so pumped about it and we get through all the gifts and we're finally there at the end and she's got this this big pile of gifts, and we look over to see her playing with the wrapping paper. <laughs> because that's what babies do, right? We had spent probably more than we should have, maybe more than we could even afford at that time, to get her all these cool, flashy things. But the thing about babies is they really love that sound that wrapping paper makes when you do this, right? And so that is all she needed and all she wanted. And, and no matter how cool the gift was on the inside, what, what mattered most to Ella in that moment was the packaging. She, she didn't even care about this stuff. She was too distracted by the stuff that it came in. That is the image that I want you to keep in mind tonight as we read through um, the latter half of 2 Corinthians 4 and into 5. It's a long text, so we're actually going to, I want to read the first half all in one chunk, and then we'll go back and walk verse by verse through it, and then we'll do the second half in one chunk and go verse by verse through it. So, here is 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. 
perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in you, but uh, in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with you and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And that's just the first half. Um... This is a, a great little section of Scripture, and it starts with a verse that is at least, I think, vaguely familiar, somewhat famous, but somewhat vague, somewhat of this, we, um, we have this treasure in jars of clay. I think the King James is earthen vessels, or maybe the old NIV or something like that. We hold this treasure in earthen vessels. Um, and, and so that's a, that's a, it's like this uh, phrase that some of us kind of know, but I don't know if we always knew like where that fit in the Bible. And, and even, even more importantly, what that means when he says it. Um, and so what does he mean by treasure? We have this treasure in jars of clay. And what does he mean by jars of clay? When he says those things, what two things are, is he referencing or illustrating by those two words right there? And um, in order to be able to understand this, the, we follow the number one rule in interpreting the Bible at any point, and that is we read in context. So we look at the context of the passage if we want to know what they are. So starting with treasure, what we do is we look at the verses immediately before this. Let, let me kind of backtrack um, for those who maybe weren't here. Well, even if you were, it's been a couple weeks um, since our last passage, which is in 3.6, I think, all the way through, or 3.7 all the way through 4.6. And uh, Alec and Scott talked a little bit about that. That previous section speaks of us now bringing a new covenant. It speaks of being a new covenant, which is much more glorious than the old. He says that the old covenant was glorious, so glorious that when Moses went up on the mountain to get it, to get the law, and he came down, his face was um, consumed. It had been transformed by the glory of God so that, that his face was shining with this glory, and Moses had to cover it up with a veil. Paul says it was that glorious, and yet, Paul says, the new covenant that we are part of is, is so much more glorious. So, like, so much more that it makes the old one look like nothing. And, and then he says, but the problem is, even though it is glorious, and because it is so amazing and glorious that we are proud to declare it, Paul says, there is a veil, if you will, a new kind of veil that sits over the eyes of many unbelievers. Specifically, I think he talks about Jewish people, those of the Jewish faith, he says, that, that cannot see the new covenant for what it is, that can't see the light of the gospel, that can't see the light of Jesus in it, is what Paul says. And then he finishes with this. This is a Chapter 4, verse, starting in verse 3, he says, And even if our gospel, this is where we get what the treasure is, all right? So pay attention to what his main idea is. Um, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. But God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what is the treasure? Because as soon as he says this, he goes into, and we hold this treasure. The treasure, he actually says in two or three different ways, but very similarly, it is the light of the gospel of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, or the light of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Have you would say, it is this new message of the covenant, this gospel about Jesus Christ and the glory that it brings, that is the treasure that Paul is talking about. What is the jar of clay that that treasure is sitting in? Read further down, and now we look on the, the, the following context to see what he's talking about. So verse 8, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, and here you get to see it, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So the jar of clay, in this context, he repeats over over and over again, we carry this in our bodies, in our mortal flesh, in us. The treasure is the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. And, and the vessel, the jar of clay, is the Paul and Silas and Timothy, Paul and his ministry team. Specifically, he's referencing their bodies. It comes in this jar of clay. And, and jar of cl- jars of clay, the, the reason Paul uses this is because they were, A, very common. Uh, many houses, uh, you know, like every house had multiple jars of clay in them, earthen vessels in them. Um, and, and also, it was known, jars of clay are fragile. Jars of clay are weak. Jars of clay are unimpressive. Um, and, and this is the idea that Paul is trying to get across when he describes himself and his body as a jar of clay. Now, when you look at, now when you understand that, and when you look at last text and how it swings into our text today, Paul has just done something kind of cool. Because what Paul did was he set them up and said the old covenant was incredibly glorious. So glorious that when God decided to give it on Mount Sinai, the people came to it and and they set lines around it and said, no human being should come up and touch this mountain and let no animal touch this mountain or they will die. And the mountain is like on fire as they approach it. And there's this loud thundering noise and crashes of lightning. And when Moses, the only one allowed to go on there, does go on, as we said, he sees the glory of God to the effect that when he comes down, his face is shining. And then Paul says, and that covenant, it looks, its incredible glory looks as though there is no glory at all when you stand it next to the new covenant, right? To which, so, so the question that comes on, wow, if the old covenant came like that, can you imagine what the glorious new covenant comes in? And that's where Paul goes, plot twist, it comes in an old worn down tent maker. That's how it comes. Nothing flashy, nothing brilliant. It comes in this beat-up body that I'm writing to you with right now. That's how the new covenant comes. And that seems crazy. That seems kind of 
counterintuitive in a lot of ways, especially to people in Corinth. Things that are impressive, things that are glorious, things that are huge, come in impressive and glorious packaging, come in impressive fashion. When the president comes to town, he doesn't come driving his own personal Buick into town. He comes in a motorcade that is miles long and has all kinds of secret service on either side and in a limo as flags are waving all over the place. When you open up, any of you guys who are like Apple fans, when you open up a MacBook or an iPhone, the packaging is just amazing. Sometimes I'm more, I'm, I'm as impressed by, I love getting those things just to open them up and see how awesome it is the way that they've packaged it. And what they're saying when you're opening this is you're about to experience something incredible. You're about to open something awesome by the way you open those things up. And this is the way it would have made sense to the Corinthians back then. Remember, the teachers, the false teachers who are super apostles, are coming to them to be very impressive. And that's how you know that we're worth listening to. That's how you know we're worth following. To. Listen to how impressive we are when we speak. Look at the kind of people we can gather around us. Look what people will pay to come listen to us talk. And, and it doesn't make sense, it seems counterintuitive, if this new covenant, if this new message that Paul brings is so amazing and so incredible, it seems crazy that it would come in this jar of clay, this weak, fragile, unimpressive vessel that is Paul and the rest of his crew. So why? Why would it come like that? If the old covenant came in such glorious and spe spectacular fashion, why would God send the new one out to the Gentile world in such an unspectacular manner? And the answer Paul gives in verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's why, Paul says, so that nobody gets confused about where the power is here. If Scott were to come back from this week and you asked him what he did over the fall break and he told you he went and he ran a triathlon and, and actually he, he won the triathlon actually um, because those of you who know Scott know that he's a pretty fit dude. He likes to do the CrossFit thing, you know, go to a gym and throw big tires and do tongues with your pull or pull ups with your tongue or whatever it is that you know so he, he he's he does all kinds of crazy stuff. So Scott came and said, you know, actually I went and I went down to Dallas and. Uh, actually won this triathlon, you'd go, wow, that's, I mean, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty awesome, but I, I can see that, right? I get that. Um, if I came back from fall break and you asked me what I did, and I said, I, I actually, I went down to Dallas and I, uh, I won a triathlon, uh, you would laugh, <laughs> and you'd go, okay, yeah, for real, what did you do? And I would say, no, I actually, I, would, I won this triathlon. You would say, okay, one of two things, either you are on performance-enhancing drugs or... <laughs> Every other competitor broke their ankle when the race started. Um, and even then, I'd be surprised if you won it, Drew, right? Um, because um, when you look at Scott, you go, that makes sense. When you look at me, you go, no, no, it causes you to have to lean forward and go, okay, tell me, what's the real story? Because there's no way you could have pulled that off without a miracle. And when Paul comes into town, if Paul rolls into town... Um, in, in this really impressive manner, if he comes in as this amazing charismatic speaker that's, a, that's able to just gather anybody around him with his silver tongue, and if he's living this luxurious lifestyle and he's able to come in and toss all this money around to help start the church, then there's no wondering about how that thing gets started. That makes sense. Yeah, of course. Of course you're able to get your little club going 
Paul, who doesn't want to come follow somebody charismatic and who seems to have it all together and have the kind of life that I want? Of course that's how that's going. That's why that works that way. That's how the um, false teachers were doing it back in Paul's day. That's how prosperity teachers, health and wealth gospel preachers do it today as well. Televangelists who get on and tell people that if you'll just follow Jesus and if you'll be obedient to Him and if you'll have enough faith that He's going to give you a bigger house and He's going to give you more money and He's going to give you uh, nicer cars and He's going to do all those things. And here's the proof. Look at me and look at my life. As I've been faithful, I've been able to have more and more God has blessed me. And so they'll go and they'll put on some revival or conference and they'll pl- uh, fly their private jet there to, to get there and set up. And people will come and flock and then he'll preach and the invitation will happen and a bunch of people will come forward and they'll go, See, look, it's happening. Do you see the power at work in my ministry? But the truth is, nobody's there because they want Jesus. They're there because they want that man's life. Because they look at that guy and they go, that, yes, that, look, if, if he seems to have it all together, whatever he's doing, I'll do. I, I want some of those things. And what's happening is they're like children who are getting caught up with the wrapping paper rather than seeing the true gift that is supposed to be offered to them in Jesus. They're getting caught up in those things. And, and Paul says, that's why I come weak. That's why I come suffering. That's why I come in this fragile body as it is so that when the gospel takes off, when the church starts, when things start happening, nobody looks and goes, it's because of his charismatic preaching. Nobody looks and goes because, of, uh, because people just want to be like Paul and because he looks like he has it all together. The only explanation is that God is at work and it is the power of God in him. So th- this is actually what people are accusing of, remember? He's not that impressive. Look, he's not that amazing when he speaks. He doesn't charge people. Look, he came into town. He was all beat up. He, he's clearly kind of causes trouble. He's not that impressive. And Paul says, exactly. That's the whole point. That's the reason I operate in the way I do is so that it will be shown that the power is from him. By the way, this actually is counterintuitive as it might seem at first. This makes sense because this isn't just how the new covenant was delivered. It's how it came. When the New Covenant first came through Jesus, it did not come with incredible fanfare. It did not come with a big coronation service. It came with a a little peasant baby born in a feeding trough. And when it kicked off, it, it kicked off not with Jesus marching into town and sitting on a throne, but with him gathering some uneducated fishermen and hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes. It came in these very unimpressive means, which is surprising because it's, it's, it's amazing how quickly we fall into the belief that if we could just get the right kind of influential people on our side as Christians, like if we could just win some celebrities or some politicians over our side, if we could just get a big enough program going or a big enough church going, I actually hear this kind of stuff as a campus minister. People tell me, man, it's so awesome that you're doing college ministry because you're getting to have an impact on the people who are going to be influencers in the next generation. Or this is why it's so great for you to get to reach out to um, international college students because after you do that, you're influencing like the cream of the crop, the people who are going to go back to their countries and be CEOs and be entrepreneurs and be government leaders and you get to influence the influencers and that sounds really good and that seems to make sense. The only problem is it just doesn't seem to be the way the Bible ever operates. It doesn't seem to be the way that God has done these things all along. 
He's always been pleased. Paul, Paul actually tells the Corinthian church, because a lot of the people in the Corinthian church, even though they're impressed by this stuff, they weren't this stuff. A lot of them were poor. A lot of them were former slaves. Some of them were slaves even at this time. And Paul says, not many of you were strong when I first came to you. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were rich or impressive. And he says, but that's just the way God likes it. He loves to use the weak to, to surprise the world. He loves to use the weak to shame the strong and the, and the foolish to shame the wise to show how amazing he is, that he can use these small things in, in making big things happen. Um, so, um, one of the other things you notice, he goes on this kind of list of we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Just talking about the persecution he faces drives him sometimes to the brink. And yet he is always able, God always sustains him through it. But then he goes into this, for we, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. I want you to kind of see something. Here's another good principle. When you are reading a text and trying to get an idea for what the main idea of it is, is look for contrasts in the text. Those of you who are in table groups, this is one of the questions we, added, we asked you. Look for the contrasting ideas in this text that you see. And, and here's kind of our first one that we just saw uh, Paul bring out, and that is death and life. Now, as we read through, we're going to see uh, a number of other ones here. So let's move on into verses 13 through 15. It says, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul is quoting here, he says, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. That's a quote out of Psalm 116. I think it's 116.10. But that psalm, the whole context of that psalm is about someone who is facing difficult circumstances, who is under pressure from all sides, and who is crying out to God for relief. And God delivers that person. And Paul says, just like so many other believers before me, all the way back to the Old Testament, um, I believe that God is enough to take care of me, and so I speak out, so I continue to preach. Just like the psalmist did, and they saw deliverance, I speak out knowing that even in persecution, I will see deliverance. And yet, Paul's idea of deliverance is a little bit different. Paul's idea is not necessarily that God is always going to save me, or that God is always going to make it work. He says this, verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. This is the deliverance that Paul has in mind. I don't know what will go through, what, what my body and life will go through here on earth, but I know that one day God is going to deliver me from it because even when I face death, he will raise me back to life just as he did with Jesus. Um, and then he says, and that's why I'm able to go on, but also he says, because it benefits you. Um, it is for your sake. So as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. Um, those of you who go to Sunnybrook, you may hear us say sometime, this is something I think Jim said first, but we, it's kind of made our way into all of our talk and prayers, but we pray about God doing things for his glory and for our joy. Um, and that's what, that's what Paul talks about here. 
that as more and more people come to know Him, as grace comes to them, they thank God in joy, and that joy and thanksgiving glorifies God. Verses 16 through 18. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, you may notice here that he's starting to stack up some contrasts here. First, he says, he, he talks about the difference between our outer man, which is being wasted away, and our inner self, which is being renewed day by day. And then he talks about, where am I, okay, he talks about the idea of light and momentary afflictions um, with an eternal weight of glory. Um, And then he talks after that about looking to things that are um, unseen rather than seen. And he talks about, because the things that are seen are transient, the things that are unseen are eternal. This is how he lasts. So he says, yes, I am wearing down. My present condition is wasting away, but, but my inner self is being renewed day by day, is being made together over and over again day by day. And it is because, he says, of what I know. And that is this statement that these light and momentary afflictions... Can we just pause for a second to talk about how crazy it is for Paul to say that? That the, the beatings that he's taken and the imprisonments and the shipwrecks he calls light and momentary afflictions. That's just crazy to talk like that. Um, it, it makes it, it... It's odd for me to try and put my own hardship in perspective. If Paul's are light and momentary, then what am I? Um... But Paul says, no, light and moment. Now, he's not saying they're not hard. He's not like the kid who gets a spanking from their parents and says that didn't hurt, right? When they were pelting him with rocks to try and execute him outside of Lystra, he wasn't shouting out, is that the best you can do? Um, No, it hurts. It was hard. The reason he's able to call them light and momentary is because what he compares them to, and that is the eternal weight of glory that's coming. The glory that's coming on the other side makes that look minuscule, makes that look like nothing in comparison. And for that reason, that's where he sets his eyes to the things ahead, the things that he cannot see, because he says, that's the stuff that lasts. The stuff here and the things I'm experiencing are transient, but those things will last. Now we come to 2 Corinthians 5. Let me read these 10 verses and we'll move through them quickly. Um, Actually, I'll do, uh, yeah, here we go. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home 
or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This text is an interesting one, and it has some interesting implications for the afterlife. Um, for what Christians believe about the afterlife. And so it's been heavily discussed by um, commentators and theologians trying to work through it. He says, um, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For if this, in this tent we groan, longing to put our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. What he's contrasting here, he talks about a tent and then a building. And he talks about one that is the tent being earthly, and then he talks about the, uh, the building being eternal. The tent that he's talking about is his own body. That I live in this tent. He's using this analogy of a house. Actually, he might be using an analogy of a temple, like the tabernacle that was temporary, that you would go and set it up, and then after a time you would tear it all down and bring it to another place and set it up and tear it up, but it didn't stay up. Um, and he says, but we know that there's being prepared for us a house in heaven, a building that will not go down like, it, like the temple was. When the temple gets made, it stands in this place permanently. He says, this is what we are looking forward to, our, our new, and what he means by that then, is our new heavenly body. Something real, I would say, something physical something concrete that he is going to be living in. But then he kind of mixes metaphors from kind of like house to clothing. And he says, we, we can't wait to wear that. We hope to be in that and not to be found naked. That is, not to be without a body. Which gets a little interesting. So here's what he says in 4 and 5. For while we are still in this tent, this body, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Here we see clothed and unclothed as another contrast. And he says, we groan while we are in this body, but not to be unclothed. That's not the goal. And you go, yeah, of course. But actually, for many of the Greeks in this culture at this day, that was the goal. They believed, the Greek philosophers at this time, believed that the body was this um, kind of um, cumbersome, obtrusive shell that kept the real me, my soul, locked up tight in it. And so they couldn't wait for the, way that, the day that we could die and be free of this body. Now, I may have shared with you, there's a common phrase back then, soma summa, it meant the body is a tomb. And I cannot wait to be free of this thing. But Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not what we long for. We don't believe that physical is bad and spiritual is good. No, God made the physical just as He made the spiritual. What I long is not to be out of this body so I can just be a spirit that's free and unhindered, but that I can be in the body that God has prepared for me, the one that, that He has intended all along, the one that I'm looking forward to. So he says we don't long to be in this state. Now, some people think that what Paul is talking about actually is, and I, I don't have too much time to get into this, but he believes that we are in a body now, and then when you die, that you will be in a disembodied state. That your soul and spirit is in this disembodied state. It's still there, so you're still conscious, but you don't, you're not in a body. And then when Jesus comes back in the end of time, in the resurrection, that then everyone is given a new body. 
I don't know this for sure. We don't know. Some people think that you get your new body right after you die. Some people think that you're disembodied until that day comes when Jesus comes and gives everyone a new body. We do know this for sure, though, that you are never away from Jesus, regardless of your state after your death. And we know that because of what he says right after this. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body. And what happens when you're away from the body? You're at home with the Lord, with Jesus. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So here's these last ones. Home, away, and we walk by faith, not sight. Uh, by faith, not by sight. And Paul says that when we are away from the body, we will be with the Lord. He's not saying that when you're at home in this body that you can't be with God at all. Now we believe, Paul believes in the presence of Jesus with his people through his Holy Spirit now. But in this world, it is a um, overshadowed presence. It is a presence that we are sometimes blinded to and it's hard to see and it's hard to hear. My four-year-old daughter asked me tonight, God, Daddy, why doesn't God talk to us anymore? And that's a heavy one to unpack, laying down in the bunk bed, at, uh, right when you're trying to put your four-year-old down. But what she's, what she's actually aiming at is not this truth that God doesn't speak to us. He does. What she's talking about, though, is it is hard for us to hear Him in this state. It's hard for us to see Him as He is in this state. But one day, when we are out of this, we will be able to see Him as He is. And Paul says, I look to that. And so because I look to that, I make it my aim to please Him in every way. Because I know this, that one day we will all stand before the Lord and give an account to be paid back for what we did, whether good or bad. Now that's a big, big statement, and I know we could spend some time unpacking it. Let me leave you here with this, and we'll talk more about it, I'm sure, as we go this year. Paul is able to hold these two tensions in his hands as a Christian, and he believes we should as well. Um, a tension between a beautiful assurance in who we are in Christ and all that He has done, and also a warning about pursuing Him with all we have and being sanctified as we do those things. And so Paul says, you ought to be assured, you do not have to live your life in this anxiety that is freaking out about your state before God. But you also don't have to and shouldn't be living in apathy or lethargy or in laziness. Because we know that one day we'll stand before him to give an account of what we are. Paul holds these two things together. Now, this to wrap up and then we'll kind of go. What is the common theme between almost every one of these contrasts here? As you look at it, and this is a key that, that gives you Paul's perspective that enables him to live the way he does. Almost every one of these contrasts has to do with what is here in front of my face that seems very real and the thing that is out in front of me that is actually more real. And Paul says, I hold on, even though this is right in front of my face, even though I feel that rock when it hits me in the head, even though I feel hungry when I don't get food, even though that feels more real, I believe, I know that this over here is more real, that this is going to last far more longer, and that is what I cling to in order to do this. I make it my goal then to please God. Here's a question. How do you do that? 
How do you please God specifically in your suffering and your hardship? And Scott will talk about that in just a couple of minutes. But now we'll take a break. All right, so Rachel, you guys know she was, uh, she's awesome. She was supposed to be teaching this tonight, and about 3.30 today, she, she said uh, she was too sick to do it, so I am going to be preaching her notes. Um, I'm not going to be preaching her illustrations on being a parent of a mom of two toddlers, uh, but I am going to kind of do my best to, to present what she's worked hard over the last several weeks to put together. Um, and, and, t- and tonight we're going to talk about something that, that at, some, at, at some level I haven't experienced, and at other, and another level I have. And this is topic of suffering. Um, I don't know about you, but when I read the New Testament, and I read Acts, and I, and I read um, Paul's words, and I hear... Even Peter's words, I hear these things that that uh, the disciples are going through, and I and I you know see in Acts the things that they went through. I, to be honest, I go okay, what what's going on? Because my life, one of these is not like the other. Okay, I am not like them. Like I'm not experiencing the things that they're experiencing. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Like I, this suffering thing, I don't know. I mean. You and I can come up with ways in which we suffer, but I've never, I've never um, physically been harmed because of preaching the gospel or because of um, standing for my faith. Maybe some of you have. I, I would, I would bet that some of you have been are are in families where uh, your maybe your families don't believe, and there's been maybe not physical harm or abuse, but maybe there's been some emotional, maybe there's been some ridicule or some mocking or you've maybe had some of that in high school or or maybe even here uh, sitting in 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 classes with professors that really just there I've heard several students in my time as a college minister I've heard of professors say that their goal is to get you to give up this fairy tale and and so I I can't imagine that that being difficult and um, I just heard of a student recently I don't know if he's here um, but a couple, a week ago, a week or two ago, who a, a professor that was outspoken against um, what the Bible was teaching, he kind of came the next day and presented a, a, an intelligent argument for why we can trust what the Bible said, and and it actually went well. The, the teacher seemed to respond well. At least said, "Man, I thank you for being for for sharing that and for being prepared," and and um, it, it seemed to go well. But I also know that there's times that that doesn't happen. And so this idea of suffering is kind of an interesting idea. And so I want to, I want to define a little bit um, of what we're talking about. Um, our staff got away for a staff retreat a couple weeks ago, and we spent some time thinking about this idea because we were, as a staff, wrestling with this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul talks about suffering for the gospel. And so we really wrestled with it. So what, how, how do we, are we doing that? How do we do that? And how do we see that? And what, what is that about? And what we kind of concluded was that there are, there's a couple ways to look at this. One is suffering for the gospel, where, like Paul, um, Paul is experiencing physical trauma or uh, abuse at some level, persecution, because he is sharing the gospel. 
And how, how do you know that? Because if he stopped, it would stop. And that's kind of an interesting way to think about it, is if you stopped ministering, or if you stopped witnessing, or if you stopped sharing your faith, would, would the ridicule, would the harm, would that stop? Then that's a pretty good sign that, that you're suffering for the gospel at some level. And then we talked about another kind of suffering, which is, which is suffering with the gospel. And what I mean by that is, is that all of us are going, going to go through difficult times in our life. Okay? And, and a difficult time um, can change. I guarantee you, you will look back on your time in college and go, yeah, that really wasn't so hard. I, I thought it was hard. I thought it was stressed. I thought I had so much going on. But then... Right? I, I've had those moments, and I, I guarantee in 10 years I'll, ha- I'll look back on my time in, now and go, yeah, you know, wait, just wait till your kids are, just wait till your kids are at this, at this age, you know? Um, and so, so I, I remember thinking, man, with little kids and diapers and getting up in the middle of the night, this is so hard. And now I have a daughter that's driving. And I have, you know, we're getting to this time where we're starting to see, like, my kids could really just choose to walk away from the Lord. My, my kids could choose to want to hang around people that are going to walk them away from the Lord. And holy cow. Like, yeah, I'm not getting up in the middle of the night changing diapers, but I am having sleepless nights thinking and praying about what, you know, things that could happen. And so hard changes over time, but, but all of us kind of experience different things, and so suffering with the gospel is going, okay, in light of what Jesus has done, this is how I go through this. This is how I live through this. And so I, I'm going to spend most of my time um, talking about the second one. How do we suffer in light of the gospel? How do we suffer well, knowing what Jesus has done? In light of who Jesus is and what he's done, that's what we talked about a couple weeks ago, in light, of, in light of who Jesus is and what He's done and who I am in Him, how now should I live? How now should I handle this? How, how should I walk through this um, in, it, well? Because this verse, and Drew, Drew read it and highlighted it um, in verse 9 of our text today. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Do you make it your aim to please Him? Think about that. Do you want that? Can you say that? Um, so, so what she has here is three ways. Three ways to please God in the midst of suffering. Three ways to please God in the midst of suffering. And, and uh, I've, heard, I've heard someone say that you're either in three places. You're either heading into a storm, you're in the middle of a storm, you're coming out of a storm, right? You're heading into a difficult time in the middle of one or, or, or coming out of one. So all of us are in one of those. And that's true. And so you may not be in one right now, but these notes could be helpful for you to look back on, to look back on later. So for the first one, here's what she has. First one is this, long for heaven. Long for heaven. This is, a, this is an interesting idea. Um, the, the verse she has here is, is 4.17 of our text. For this light and momentary affliction, and Drew talked about how crazy that Paul could say that, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory um, beyond all comparison 
And as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So, and Paul, this is the first time he, he talks about this. He, he also mentioned this in, in Colossians 3. This idea of look not to the things of this earth, but look, look up, look above, look to Jesus, look to where He is, look to who you are hidden in, and, and look to things that are eternal. Focus on things that are eternal, not on things that are right here. Um, and a simple a simple way to think about this is, and I always think about this when I'm driving, because I remember when I first started learning how to drive, I was, um, it, we were taking this big trip down to, to Texas, and I lived in Kansas, so we were on this long, long trip, and I remember being in Tulsa for some reason, and I hate driving in Tulsa, but I remember even hating it then as a 16-year-old, but, but anyway, and I remember I, I, I was driving, and I was focusing on the line right in front of me, right, you know, so when you're driving home, do this. Um, focus right in front of the car, right at the line. And what you'll, what you'll notice is you'll, you'll start to do this. You'll overcorrect constantly when you, when you look down right in front of you. But when you look up at the, kind of the, the horizon of the road, so to speak, all of a sudden it kind of starts to smooth out. You don't, make, you don't overcorrect. You don't turn sharply. You don't, you just, it kind of smooths out. And it's always just a reminder to me of, of this very thing. Like when I look directly in front of me, when I focus on what I'm going through, it's so easy to. It's so easy to think about what's around me and what I'm dealing with and the things that I have and the things that I'm going through. But, but it's, it's really, when, when my gaze kind of comes up, it's like, oh, okay, now I see the forest instead of staring at the tree. Now I see this bigger picture. Now I see, like, okay, this is, this is a momentary thing. This is a temporary thing. And, and it's not the end of the world. This isn't the biggest deal in the world. Um, or maybe it is a big deal. Maybe what you're going through is a huge deal, a crazy thing that's happened. But it's, it's looking up that helps make sense to any of this and all of this. And I, and I think this is really helpful. Um, it really is easy to focus on the things that we're um, living in and, and enjoying in our life and and to lose sight of this eternal perspective. And we need to long, we need to spend time longing for heaven. And that's a discipline. And, and one of the ways I think that, one of the habits that we can have to practice this, to, to, um, to look up, and is, is this discipline of worship. Of, of allowing time throughout your week to spend time just in awe and wonder at God. Like when's the last time you just got to sit in awe and wonder at who God is. Maybe at what He's created. Maybe sitting in nature. Maybe um, thinking about your life. Maybe thinking about others and what, and what God is doing in others. But just being in awe and wonder at God. All of a sudden, it, 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 it raises you up to this higher elevation and you can look down and go, okay, yeah, the things that I think are a big deal really start to fade away. And now, God, I have this perspective. I can, I can, get, I can handle these things and walk through these things. Um, there's a great book, by the way, called *The Eclipse of Heaven* by A.J. Conyers. I read it in college, and I've read it again since. And it's been, it's been long enough. I need to read it again. It's, it's. I very rarely will read a book twice. This is one of them. Um, *The Eclipse of Heaven* by A.J. Conyers. And I went to Amazon while I was sitting over there to see how much a used copy is. It's about five or six bucks. 
that's that's in good condition and free shipping. So, and so I ordered one. So the first one that tells me they want this book, it's yours. Now you're an intern. You don't get it. Okay, Rachel. Sorry. That's true. She said, I'll order you one too. Fine, two of them. Um, remind me. That's your job is to remind me to order you one because she gets the first one. Ladies first. So um, another thing that's helpful for me to think about this is last week I was in Mexico. Last week I, got, I did go to Mexico. I didn't do a triathlon. I couldn't do a triathlon. By the way, I tried to do a triathlon this summer. I tried training for a triathlon. And I quit because of Alec. It's Alec's fault. But we, we all quit. Um, we, were, we were practicing the swimming, and it wasn't practicing swimming. It was practicing not drowning. That's all it was. And so I thought, you know, I don't, this isn't fun. I don't like to just try not to drown. That's not really fun for me. So anyway, I quit. But I was in Mexico this past week with London, wherever she is. Where is she? Right there. And we had an awesome time. It was in incredible to see what God's doing down there. Um, but any time, and I've been away quite a bit this fall, maybe a little more than usual, and I have, I have a couple more trips um, coming up that I'm going to be away from my kids and my wife. And, and so whenever I'm away and I get time kind of to myself, I start think, looking back on all the time I've wasted when I could have been with my kids and things I could have done and um, things I, you know, how I need to be more patient with my son, all these things. I start thinking about it. and it just it grows and grows and grows to to like when I'm driving home I'm just thinking man there are so many things I need to say and do with my kids and my wife and and, and I, I have this longing to be home you ever had that you ever this longing to be home or to be with the people that you really are connected with and I think I think God gives us those kinds of experiences uh, and those, those emotions, and obviously for good reason. But I think also too, and this is true of a lot of things in life, um, they're, they're, they're a taste of the kind of longing that we are to have to, have our, to be in our eternal home. I mean, I, I really do believe. In the same way that, um, that intimacy with another person is, is a beautiful thing, I think it's a picture of and a taste of the kind of intimacy that we were made for, right? I think when we experience distance between another person and we, and we ache at that, I think it's a picture of and a taste of the kind of ache that, that truly happens when we're, when we're distant from the Lord. And, and so I think there's, that's true of a lot of things in life, but this idea of longing for home, um, you know, I, I, I think is, is something that, we can be reminded of whenever we miss someone or we want to be somewhere else. The long for heaven. Here's the second thing she has. is to remember the sovereignty of God. Remember the sovereignty of God. Uh, the verse we got is 4-7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Okay? Belongs to God and not to us. The, the, the overarching theme of 2 Corinthians is that, that God is powerful in our weakness. Like, that His power shines through our weakness. And over and over and over, Paul makes this point. And God's ways are perfect. He, he is so far, His ways are above our ways. And He is calling and redeeming and restoring the world back to Himself 
for his name's sake. And this is an idea that is, is somewhat of a, 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 a profound idea for me that I've, in the last 10 years or so, have really begun to see more and more in Scripture what God, is, what God has been saying all along, and I just have missed it. Oftentimes I think about um, the sovereignty of God as Him sovereign in my life to help me do the things that He wants me to do and help me to, I don't know, be successful at some level or have whatever. And, and I think His sovereignty is much bigger than just our own path and, and, and journey. So if you have your Bible, turn to Ezekiel 36. I just want to point out a couple verses that have really jumped out at me. Ezekiel 36. And I want you to see them, and I'd, I'd love if you're an underliner, underline these. Just so, you can, just so you can be reminded of what God is about. This is in the context of, this is, you know, this is a prophet, Ezekiel. He's speaking to an exiled people, his people, God's people, Israel, who are in exile because of their sinful disobedience. They're chasing idolatry. They're uh, forfeiting the covenant of God. They're, you know, giving up on that, chasing other things, abandoning him. He'll actually describe what they've done here in a second. But I, I'm not really much of a heading guy. But I think the ESV got the heading over 36, verse 16. What does it say? ESV heading over um, verse 16. The Lord's concern for His holy name. What does that mean? What's that about? Well, here's what it says. Verse 21. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. So as, as Israel was going about, and he's, they're supposed to be representing him, and they profaned his name. And God says, yeah, that's why I sent them into exile. Because I have concern for my holy name. Like my name is more important than their happiness right now. And so because they've been disobedient, and this was hundreds of years of patience that God had with them, and that's why he says, look at verse 23. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Um, another verse that, that has jumped out at me is Psalm 4610. Um, Psalm 46.10 came alive to me uh, in the fall of 2005. I don't know the exact month. So the fall of 2005, I was spending this day away with the Lord. I, was, I remember I was. I was in the, the backyard of a friend's house who had a really nice pool. And I was doing two things. One, I was catching up on my Bible reading because I had committed to read through the Bible for a whole year. And I was behind several days or maybe a week. And so I was doing some, some catch-up reading. I about said speed reading, but I didn't want to say that. Um, catch-up reading. And, and the other thing I was doing was praying about taking this new job opportunity. So the church that I was at, we'll call it the mother church, was starting a daughter church in the valley next I, My family and I lived in Southern California at the time. So they, in the San Fernando Valley, 
San Fernando Valley, this church that I was at, was starting this church in Simi Valley. And the church in Simi Valley had been, been around for a year and a half, and they asked me to, to come over and um, do basically what I was doing at the mother church, to do it at the daughter church. So anyway, I was praying about this. Is this God, is this what you want? And I, and I was over and over and over, God, what do you, you, know, what do you want me to do? This, is this what you want us to do? How do, how do I know? It's a really big deal, you know, if I leave, you know, you know, what do you want to do? And, and I kept asking this question, God, it sounded really spiritual. God, what do you want me to do? I'll do whatever you want me to do. At, at, at some level, God was able to cut right through all of that crap and speak to my heart. And, and really what I was, what I was asking was, God, I'm, I'm a really big deal. And it's a really important thing if I stay here if I, or if I go there. Just tell me what you want, because whatever it is, it's going to be a really big deal. Because if I go over there, I mean, I mean, I could change the world over there, or do you want me to change the world here? Where do you want me to be, because I'm really, really important? That's, that's really kind of, to be honest, that's, that's what I'm asking, because I'm going, God, I am a really big deal, and this is a really big decision, and I need to know what you want me to do. In Psalm 46.10, I've always heard this verse quoted, and it's always quoted, the, the, the last part of the verse is always quoted, okay? And it's, and it's always quoted like this meditation verse, be still and know that I am Lord, right? Be still and know, right? So I've heard people talk about this. I've never heard anybody quote the first part of this. And so I'm reading through the Bible, and, and I come to that verse thinking, I, I'm, I've quoted Psalm 46.10 before, but only the second part. The first part says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Therefore, be still and know that I am God. And, I, and, and that knocked me over because God's answer was, who cares what you're going to do? Because I'm going to be exalted regardless of whether you stay or whether you go. I'm going to be exalted. That's the whole point of your life, of why I called you into ministry, of why I've given you a family, of why I've let you live in Southern California and not killed you a long time ago. I'm going to be exalted. And it was, it was profoundly humbling for me. And so I stopped asking the question. I really did. I stopped asking, God, what do you want me to do? Um, my wife and I just started talking about it and we go, well, you know what? Let's try it on. Let's act like we're going to go and see if we think we will like it. And we did. And so we decided to go. And we had peace about it. And I'm not, I don't look back and go, I made a mistake or I did the right thing. I will look back and I go, eh, we chose to go. And we experienced God working in the new church just like we did in the old church. Another verse. Um, Proverbs 19.21 Proverbs 19.21, I discovered on September 11th of 2001. How many of you know where you were on September 11th, 2001? Okay. It's, 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 it's like half, like not even half of you in the room because the other half of you were like two or three or four or something and you don't remember when 9-11 happened. You've seen videos, you've heard your parents talk about it. I remember where I was. I was... My wife and I, we were waking up when Ryan's mom, my wife's mom, called and said, hey, turn on the TV, you know, because we were living in the West Coast, and this happened on the East Coast, and three hours difference, and so it was like seven, seven or eight o'clock in the morning, we were getting ready 
I was a, uh, I was a pastor of this mother church. This is before I, I went to the daughter church. And my wife actually was an administrative assistant at the same church. So we were getting up and getting ready and watching the TV and just in shock, right, at all this and then driving to, to work. It's about a 25-minute drive, listening to the radio, getting to work, huddling, huddling around a TV in somebody's office the whole day and just watching the news. We got, I got to see the live video of the second plane. I mean, it was... And so I'm, I'm scrambling to try to make sense of what in the heck is happening here. Um, and I don't know if somebody quoted it or, or if, if somehow I stumbled across it. I don't know how I came across this verse. But I've never forgotten it, ever. I haven't underlined in every Bible I've had since then. It's many are the plans of, of man's heart, but it is what? Anybody have it? The Lord's the Lord's purpose that prevails. That, I memorized it in the NIV, okay, so I don't know what the ESV says. Um, many are the plans of man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that, that prevails. In other words, yeah, men, you and I, we have plans. We think we, think we are going to make plans, and no matter what our plans are, the Lord's purpose is going to prevail. So, you know, as I'm going through difficult times... Um, do I, do I remember the sovereignty of God? Like that He is in charge. That, that He has a plan. That He will be glorified. That His purpose will prevail. Do you trust Him? Um, now, trusting Him doesn't mean we really try really hard to ignore the doubts that we have. God may have allowed you to have those doubts for a reason. Maybe, you know, I went through a period in college where I really... I've grown up in church, I've been told these things, and I, I finally got to a point where I, I don't know if I believe him because other people told me to believe him, or if I believe him because I believe him. I don't, I don't know if I know. And I had a little bit of a crisis of faith. And luckily I was in a good friendship with Jim Johnson at the time. He was a professor at the college, and we, we talked about that. And uh, he gave me a book to read, um, a book called, another book that I read in college, called The Myth of Certainty. Um, I was just telling Alec about it the other day. The Myth of Certainty. I read that book, and it really challenged me to think about my doubts in, from a different light. That, that maybe, maybe we put too much faith in our doubts, and instead of putting faith in our doubts, maybe we, we trust God to help us work through our doubts. And so for me, that was a huge mind shift. That I'm going to put my faith in something. So I, I just from that moment on, I chose, okay, I'm, I'm going to trust the God of the Bible. I'm going to trust the God who sent Jesus, who died in, on a cross and rose again. By the way, predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, pulled it off. So because of that, I'm going to trust the things in this Bible. And I'm going to trust the God of this Bible. And, and when doubts come, I'm going to work through those doubts. And I'm going to do that in community, and I'm going to do that trusting Him. Not fully understanding, but trusting. And, and I tell you, that God has worked and used those things for his good, which kind of brings to the last one that she has here, is use your suffering to advance the kingdom. Use your suffering to advance the kingdom. Verse uh, 5.12. Back in 2 Corinthians. Wait, that's not right. No. 4.12. 
So death is at work in us, but life in you. Death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul's saying, just like, like Drew said, he, he's experiencing this persecution. He's going through these things because he's ministering to them for the gospel. And because of the suffering he's experiencing, life is happening in them. Death is at work in him, but life in them. Um, how can you use the things that God has allowed you to go through um, to bring Him glory, to um, advance His kingdom, to to minister to other people? We've already we've already read Second Corinthians chapter one three through four, right? This idea of that that God comforts us in our time of need, so that we can turn and comfort others with the comfort we've received from Him. Like there's this process involved that when we go through these things, God. God comforts and, and He has a plan and He has a purpose and, and he, we can, God can redeem and restore anything that we go through. I don't know if you guys were at um, the fall retreat last, sorry, not fall, winter retreat last January when Michael DeFazio came and spoke. He talked about this, this phrase that we use sometimes that he said we should never ever use ever again. Um, and I like those kinds of things because they stick. But the phrase is, oh, I'm, you know, everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. I've said that. I, I guarantee I've said that. He said we, sh- we should never say that because it just communicates the wrong thing. But what we can say is God can redeem and restore anything. That God can redeem and restore anything. So you have a friend that's going through something difficult and crazy and terrible and they shouldn't be going through it right maybe it's something that happened to them or or whatever but god can redeem and restore anything point their focus back to him what is what is it that god wants to do in and through me in this situation or you in this situation um there's a couple people that i, I want to she actually has a couple people she wanted to highlight and I know these people, so I don't have to read her notes, but one of them is Pam and Terry Carpenter, okay? Pam and Terry Carpenter are, um, there's a family in our church. Maybe some of you know them. They have a son named Luke Carpenter. He's their oldest son. Um, he is mentally handicapped. He has been that way from the beginning. Um, and uh, right now he, he lives at home. They, they have two younger children who are off, I think, um, their youngest, Sarah, is probably graduating this year, I think, or she already did. Their middle son has already graduated, moved on. He's, in, in, uh, he's I think, studying to be a doctor. Um, and Sarah's finishing up school, both intelligent, bright, awesome young people. And Luke is at home. And Luke, you may have seen him at church. Someone's walking him around. We actually have somebody volunteer throughout the services to kind of just be Luke's escort and walk him around everywhere. And uh, he sits in church with them. And he sits and he turns and he stares at the people right behind him. And by the way, he has a Twitter account, and it is awesome. Um, I don't know who, I assume it's his brother Josh or, or somebody that does it, but it's hilarious. Um, Luke Carpenter, look it up. So, but, but Luke has some, some issues, and they always has, and, and they are with, he is with them everywhere they go. And they are going to take care of him until, he's, until they're gone or he's gone or... And it's just, uh, but here's how I've seen them do that. So they have people that take care of him. And, and we've had several students in my time here that have been like 
Luke's buddy or babysitter or however they want to describe that. And, and the carpenters will minister to them like, and, and have them over to their home and treat them like family. And, uh, and I see them like taking this difficult situation that I'm sure they would love to have a break someday and not have to watch him all the time because he can he's gotten himself into trouble he's gotten himself hurt when they turn their eyes and when they you know she's just needs a nap and then all of a sudden he falls um i mean can you imagine never getting a break and and yet i see them using this to um the situation and just bringing glory to god and, and using it for his kingdom and it inspires me. And Rachel wanted to talk about it because it, it inspires her. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. Another couple is a couple by the name of Bo and Charissa. And uh, some of you, a lot of you know them. And so Bo and Charissa were in our ministry. Bo was a part of our ministry for five years, uh, which is pretty rare. Most, most colleges, we average maybe two years that, that you're here, you maybe discover it when you're a sophomore, junior, but there's a few in the back row over there that are working on the five-year plan. Uh, one of them's working on the seven-year plan, but we won't tell Anthony's name because that may, he won't care. Um, but, but he was involved for quite a long time. Sharissa was involved for most of that time too. And they, they met and they got married here and, um, and they just moved away recently. Okay? And they moved to Salt Lake City. And, and so he wrote, he wrote a, an article for the table newsletter that we send out quarterly. And so I want to read this to you because it's, it's pretty darn good. I think you hung out a lot with Drew because it's, it's really good. Going to do bigger and better things, he has this in quote. This is often what is said about those who leave college and go elsewhere. Those who go off into the real world. I pray with all my heart that it is not said of my wife and I. We have been a part of the table for five years now, studying Acts, 1 Corinthians, Hebrews, Mark, Ecclesiastes, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and now leaving with 2 Corinthians. We have learned what it means and seen what it looks like to have a life in Christ, to live a gospel-centered life. At the community, we have been connected to older believers and, and committed to community. After serving God with a community we dearly love in Stillwater, we are moving to Salt Lake City. Isn't that where everyone goes after attending OSU? Um, we are going to be part of Missio Day Church, an Orchard Group Church plant, not moving on to bigger and better things, or even different things. What can be bigger? What can be bigger than following Jesus with His church? But the same things in a new place, a place where God's kingdom is spreading and His Spirit is at work, and He is at the as He is at the table. Now, instead of doing those things as a teacher and a student in Oklahoma, we will be doing them as a teacher and a sprinkler designer in Utah. I pray that, that the allure of significance of moving to a big city, big new city, starting new jobs and meeting new people, and even joining a new church, falls woefully short of satisfying. Listen to this. Shiny stuff bores the saints. That's a good line. So I hope we and everyone else who, who leaves the table are bored with everything that is not Jesus Christ and His kingdom. And then he quotes 2 Corinthians 5, 9, So whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. So I wouldn't say that Bo and Charisse are necessarily suffering 
but at some level, they moved far away from family and friends. They, they did not want to leave here. They had deep roots here um, in this community. And they chose to go, to go to a place, and they didn't just pick any place. They looked around at places that he had opportunity to move, and they looked for a church that he could work with, and that's how they selected the city that they went to for ministry. And so that's, that's using your circumstances and to bring glory to God and advance His kingdom. And um, so I guess I want to I end with some questions that she has. How is death at work in you? and your daily choices, so that life, the gospel, is at work in those around you? That's a really good question. How is death at work in you? How is the gospel at work? How, how, how are sacrifices being made in your life so that the gospel can advance into others around you? How are you living for things that are unseen? How are you living for things that are unseen? Really good questions. To ponder on. So I'd like to take just a couple minutes and um, give you some time to think about those things and then I will pray and then we will be done.